Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We gather together for worship today. And if you don't know me, I'm Mike Weigline, the pastor here at ICP. And I would just add my welcome to everybody who's visiting today, either here in person or online. We're just really glad to have you with us. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from Luke chapter 15. Well, we're going to be looking at all of Luke chapter 15. But included in this is maybe the most well-known of all of Jesus's parables, one of the most beloved of Jesus's parables. And so we're going to be looking at that together this morning. Uh, So you can turn in your Bibles, if you'd like, to Luke chapter 15 as we read together. And let's pray before we read this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we give you thanks once again, as we do every week, for the gift of your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would would never uh, not appreciate what you have given us uh, here in your scriptures, uh, that you have spoken to us, that you continue to speak to us, Uh, that you use these words to form us into the likeness of your Son, and that you use them to form us as your church, as your people, uh, into the people that you would want us to be. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds to receive whatever you have to say to us today. Uh, Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Starting with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're continuing to work our way through Luke's gospel this week. And um, we're in this section of Luke chapters 10 through 18 that we, we've said it really focuses on Jesus' teachings. And Jesus is doing a lot of talking here through these chapters. There's less and less focus on the active part of his ministry, although that hasn't stopped. We, we still find him performing miracles and healing people, but the focus is really on the teaching, the things that Jesus has to say, and we are meant to pay attention to what he is teaching and saying through this section of Luke. And we've said the last few weeks that, that much of the content that Jesus covers here is about what it means to follow him, or what it really looks like to be his disciple. But he really covers all sorts of topics. He covers discipleship, of course, like we've said. He talks about interpreting the times. Uh, He talks about what he has come to do and also about the kingdom of God. And he's regularly challenging the commonly held understandings about who is included in this kingdom or how one becomes a part of it. For the people who are sort of part of the religious establishment, the the people of Israel, Jesus keeps challenging them on what they think about the kingdom of God. And for many people then, many people then, and maybe this is not so different from now, the emphasis was very much on performance. It was on performance, what you did, how you behaved. This was what mattered. Know the law, follow the rules. This is what made you righteous. And whatever rewards there were to be had, whether in this life or in the next, this is how you got it. You earned it by being good. This is what a lot of people thought. Again, this is what a lot of people think now. And I think for a lot of us, even if we might say that's not what we believe, we still sort of act as if that's what we believe. I want to be a really good person just in case. That's still the way that we get the reward. And having this understanding of how things work, it leads to sort of a a social hierarchy in some people's minds where the good people are at the top and the bad people are at the bottom. The righteous people are at the top of the social hierarchy, and the unrighteous people are at the bottom. And this is how things worked in Israel at the time, or at least among certain people. This was how things were understood. 
In our passage today, if we look at the characters in our passage, we would think that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would be at the top of this hierarchy, and the tax collectors and sinners would be at the bottom. And if you are one of the people at the top, then it really benefits you to continue to stay at the top and to keep the people at the bottom at the bottom. At least in your mind, this is going to be to your benefit because this is how you justify yourself. This is how that you prove that you are righteous, how you are one of the good people. Because you can point to other people and say, I know I'm good because look how bad they are. I know I'm good because I know I'm better than them. And even if I'm not perfect, at least I know that I'm better than a lot of the other people out there. And so we can see ourselves at the top of things. And there's a certain logic to seeing the world this way. It kind of makes sense to all of us, right? If, if this is the way things work, then I kind of know where I am in that hierarchy, where I stand on the ladder. I might be at the top. I might be at the bottom. I might be somewhere in the middle, but at least I know where I stand. So it kind of makes sense. But this is where Jesus comes in and he upsets people. And Jesus does a lot of upsetting people in the Gospels, you may have noticed. And Jesus comes in and he upsets people because he says, this isn't actually how things work in the kingdom of God. This isn't how they work in the kingdom of God. There's a different system in place here. And that is what I have come to tell you about. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying to disregard the law or to not worry about obedience. That's not the point. That's not what he's getting at here. But his main concern does not lie there. His main concern is about repentance and about faith. And until these things come into effect in our lives, then all of the rest of it isn't going to get us anywhere. Until repentance and faith come into effect in our lives, all of the rest of it isn't going to get us anywhere. Jesus says this is where righteousness and this is where justification come from. It comes through repentance and faith. And by teaching these things and by bringing these new understandings into the mix, he negates this whole social hierarchy because you cannot categorize people the same way anymore based just on their actions, whether you are a good person or a bad person. Because Jesus calls everyone to repentance. Jesus calls everyone to repentance. And we have to, if we are going to follow Jesus, we have to at some point repent. We have to at some point repent. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And because this is true, we are all called to repent at some point in our lives. So even the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the people who see themselves as righteous already, even they need to repent. And they don't like hearing that because they're the good people, right? They don't like hearing this. No one who thinks that they have got everything figured out likes being told that they don't actually have things figured out. And think about that in your own life. If you think you've got things pretty much figured out and somebody comes and says, no, it works differently, usually you don't like that. You might have some sort of negative response to that. At the same time, Jesus is calling everyone to repentance. He's also saying that repentance is available to everyone. 
Everybody has the opportunity to repent, even tax collectors and sinners, even the bad people, even the unrighteous people. They can repent too. They can have faith as well and put their faith in me as well. And in doing so, they can be made righteous in the sight of God as well. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they really don't like hearing that. And that's what's going on in our passage today when we get to the beginning of our passage. Jesus is is teaching again, like we said, and, and all of these different groups of people are there listening to him. There are Pharisees and teachers of the law, the good people, there are tax collectors and sinners, the bad people. But if you look at the first couple verses, or actually the first verse of our passage today, it says that the tax collectors and sinners are singled out as the ones gathering around to hear Jesus. And this, saying this, makes an interesting connection to the passage just before this one, the verse that comes at the very end of Luke chapter 14. Because Jesus has been teaching about the cost of discipleship and what it would mean to follow him. And he ends Luke 14 by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And then he immediately goes to 15 verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, right? These are the people who want to hear what he has to say. All of the things that he is teaching about the cost of discipleship. It's the tax collectors and sinners, these unrighteous ones who have the ears to hear. And Luke is telling us that these people are being counted among Jesus' disciples. Despite their reputations, despite their social status, they are demonstrating something about repentance and faith and a desire to follow Jesus. And Jesus receives them and welcomes them as his disciples. And this gets the righteous people murmuring as we're told here in the NIV. That's how it's translated here. We can also, or muttering, I think it says, it's also translated murmuring in other places. It's also translated grumbling. They are grumbling, and the idea is the same. And grumbling has a long history in Scripture between the Israelites and God. We talked about it a little bit in here before when we were uh, preaching on Philippians, but grumbling is something that was happening with God's people, and it points us back at least as far as the Exodus, because the Israelites grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, even as God was in the middle of saving them. God had sent Moses and Aaron into Egypt to lead the Israelites out of captivity, out of bondage, out of slavery. They were leading them through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And even as they were being saved, the Israelites started to grumble against the very people that God had sent as the agents of his deliverance. And they said, we don't like the way that we, you are doing things. We don't like what's happening out here. Why did you bring us out here in the first place, God? We were better off back in Egypt. We were better off the way things were before. Grumbling. And Luke is putting the Pharisees and teachers of the law in the same category as these Israelites as they grumble against Jesus and what he's doing with the tax collectors and sinners. They grumble against him. They don't like the way that he is doing things. And they think maybe things were better off the way they were before because it made more sense that way. We like things better. We like the social stratification because it makes sense to us. It feels more comfortable to us, maybe even safer to us. 
Even as God is providing for their salvation, once again, the people are grumbling against him. I like what Eugene Peterson says about this. Uh, He's talking about, or he likes to to be a little bit sympathetic with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he says, look, these, these are not bad people that we are talking about here, right? These are not necessarily bad people, uh, but these are people who are longing for the security and safety of moralism. The people of Israel murmured, not because they were bad and evil, but because they were good and scared. They wanted something to latch onto, and it makes more sense to latch onto the rules than it does maybe to follow God through the wilderness of this life and trust in his grace and his provision. So we have the scribes and the Pharisees. They are the insiders. They are the the good people, the good church folks who follow all of the rules. And they're there too, listening to what Jesus has to say. But when the insiders see the outsiders show up, they weren't very happy about it, as we said. They didn't like the fact that Jesus talked to these people, that he ate with these people. Why would this be such a big deal to them? It's because at that time, eating with someone carried a lot of weight. You couldn't just have a quick business lunch with someone and be done with it. Eating signified something. Eating with people meant an acceptance of them and who they were. You might think of inviting someone over to your home for dinner or for a meal and what that communicates about your relationship with them. It communicates something about how you see that person or those people. There is an implied social acceptance of someone when you have them over for dinner, when you invite them into your home. So by eating with tax collectors and sinners... Jesus is communicating to everyone that these folks are okay, that he accepts them. But this is a problem because Jesus isn't respecting the boundaries that society has put up here. And he's treating outsiders like they are insiders. And again, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to grumble about this. Why is Jesus eating with these guys? Look at him. Doesn't he know any better? That's just not the way that things are done around here. This isn't the way that we should do things. And so it's in response to this grumbling that Jesus starts to talk about lost things. And he starts by telling these two quick stories. The first one is about a shepherd with 100 sheep and he loses one. And he goes looking for it. And when he finds it, he throws a party and invites all of his neighbors and friends And then the second story is like it. A woman with 10 silver coins loses one. And so she looks all over the house until she finds it. And when she does, she throws a party and she invites all of her neighbors and friends. And Jesus uses these first two stories to set the stage for the third act. And his point is clear here. If you lose something valuable to you, when you find it, it is something to celebrate. You lose something valuable to you when you find it. It's something to celebrate. And Jesus is setting the stage here by using examples that everyone will understand. Something that is, that is fairly universal to the human experience. Losing something that is valuable to you. Even if this has never happened to you before, which I think is probably rare, but even if it's never happened to you before, you, everyone knows someone who has lost something valuable to them. Uh, or at least can imagine losing something valuable to them and the anxiety that goes along with it. But these stories aren't just about losing valuable things. 
They're about searching for those lost things and finding them. And then the communal celebration that happens afterwards. And there's a pattern in these stories which we see up there. You, you notice it both times and we'll see it again as we get to the third part of the story. But you lose something, you search for it, you find it, and then you celebrate. You lose something, you search for it, you find it, and then you celebrate. And the celebration includes everyone. The people who have lost something, when they find it, they call their friends and their neighbors and they say, celebrate with me. Let's have a party. And this kind of celebration is something that everyone can relate to as well, or I hope you can. I remember at our last church in Charlottesville, uh, we had a, a woman, she was one of the founding members of the church. She was, I think, close to 90 years old at the time. And there was one Sunday, she showed up at church and she uh, asked for prayer. She said, I have lost a large sum of money. I don't know where it went. I can't find it anywhere. Will you please pray for me that I would find this money? And so, of course, as a church, we prayed for her. And lo and behold, next week, she shows up at church. This is a true story. She shows up at church and she had found the money. She'd found the money, of course, right where she left it, and she reported back to us, and she said, celebrate with me, and everybody clapped and cheered. It was this great, exciting moment of communal celebration because she had lost something that was valuable to her, and because we cared for her and because she had told us, come and celebrate with me, we all celebrated with her. Jesus' point is that when something of value is lost and then it is found again, That is worth celebrating. It is a cause for celebration. And he says, if you can imagine the celebration that you might have over a lost sheep or over a lost coin, then imagine what it's like in heaven when one sinner comes to repentance. Imagine what that celebration is like. There's a bit of an on earth as it is in heaven that connection is Jesus is trying to make for his audience here. If you're going to celebrate these things, a lost sheep and a lost coin, then you might think about celebrating this as well when God's lost children are found. There's two other things that that I want us to notice in these uh, first two stories before we move to the third story. The first is this, that there's a trajectory that Jesus is bringing us through in these stories. If you notice, the value of the lost things goes up significantly with each story. We start with a sheep, one out of a hundred, and the person goes and looks for that sheep. And then we move to the lost coin, one out of 10. And commentators will tell you that may not sound that significant, but to this woman, this probably represented her life savings. And so to lose one of these coins was to lose a tenth of all that she had saved up throughout her life. This was not insignificant, what she had lost here. And then we move to the third story, and we see one out of two sons is lost. What's more valuable than that? Also, the second thing to notice is this use of sheep as an example that uh, Jesus uses to start with. Because just like grumbling, sheep have a long tradition in Israel's history. And it's unlikely that Jesus is using this example by coincidence. The people of Israel in the Old Testament are often compared to sheep. And we think of passages like Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6, which says this, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And then we can also look at a a passage like Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 through 16, and this is uh, what it has to say. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. 
As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all of the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. And there they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus was addressing, they would have known these scriptures well. And Jesus is already wanting them to see themselves in this passage, in these stories, in some way. We, all of us, are lost sheep in need of being found at some point. All of God's children are lost sheep at some point in our lives in need of being found. And the Lord God says, I myself will go and seek out the lost ones. So Jesus uses all of this to build to this last story. Each example so far with the, inclusion, the, excuse me, the conclusion that one sinner who comes to repentance is a cause for celebrating. Heaven throws a party whenever this happens just like we throw a party whenever we find something valuable that we've lost. And then Jesus tells this third story, which is actually about a sinner who comes to repentance. And there's a huge party, and everyone's invited, but not everybody celebrates, at least at first. This parable of the, of the lost son or the prodigal son, as it's commonly known, it's maybe, maybe again, the best known and beloved of Jesus' parables. And one of the reasons it's so well-loved is because so many of us see ourselves in this younger son, this, this son who rejected his father's home, even in some ways rejected his father's love, saying to some way, in some way to his father, I wish that you were already dead. I wish that you were already dead so that I can take my inheritance and I can go and do whatever I want and live however I want. That is more important to me than my relationship with you and staying in your household. And that's essentially what he does. He takes his inheritance and he goes out to a faraway country and he spends all of his money in wild living until he hits rock bottom. And he really can't get any lower. It says that he is feeding pigs, which for a Jewish person is about as bad as you can get. But not only that, he finds himself wishing that he could eat the pig's food. This is how bad it has gotten for this man. And then we're told that the son comes to his senses. He comes to his senses and he realizes how low he's gone. And he returns to his father's house humbly, asking just to be a servant. This man repents. This son repents. And this is how he goes from being lost to being found. And when he gets home, he finds his father waiting for him. Not only that, but when he's still a long way off, the father runs out to meet him. He's been watching. He's been waiting. And he welcomes him back as his beloved son. 
Let's not talk, let's not have all this servant talk. You were coming into my house as my son. This son of mine was dead, but is alive again. He was lost, but now is found. And the father throws a big party because this calls for celebration. Now, Jesus, of course, is using this younger son as an example of of the tax collectors and sinners who he associates with. Yes, they were lost. Yes, they were far from God. Yes, they were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing, but they have come to their senses. They have repented, and they have returned home, and their father has welcomed them as his beloved children. And this should be celebrated, because the repentance of one of God's lost children is a reason to celebrate. And again, this is why so many of us love this story, because so many of us know how lost we have been in our lives, at some point in our lives. We know how far we have been from our Heavenly Father and our home in His presence. And we know all that we've squandered and how unworthy we are to be welcomed back as His beloved child. And yet somehow, somehow we were brought to our senses and repented and return home to find our Father there to welcome us back as beloved children. This story is one of God's grace, as many of us have experienced it, because we were lost, but we have been found. Thanks be to God. So this is why we love this story so much. But then we're brought to the older son and a question. How does this story end? Jesus leaves the ending of the story open. What will the older brother do? And I want to just ask informal poll here. How many of you think that the older brother ends up going into the party? Raise your hands. Anyone? We got a few. Be bold. It's our balcony. We got one. Okay. How many of you think the older brother stays out of the party? Okay. We got some older brother haters out here. Okay. I see. That's all right. How many of you just don't know? How many of you aren't sure? I know. You know, I had never thought about it that way before. I always assumed he just stayed out. And it was a few years ago this was brought to my attention that Jesus leaves the ending of the story open. He doesn't wrap it up for us in a neat little bow. He leaves it open to interpretation. This older brother, what is he going to do? Is he going to go into the party and celebrate his younger brother's return? Or is he going to stay outside by himself in protest? And why doesn't Jesus just tell us what happens here? Why doesn't he just tell us? That would be much more helpful, don't you think? It seems like either way, it would make a good ending to the story. He stays outside and remains bitter his entire life. Or he goes inside, right? And he receives the grace of the Lord. He comes to his own senses. These are both, maybe not good endings, but at least they complete the story for us. Will he or won't he? We don't know. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't tell us what happens here, especially with so much of the other details of the story being shared. This is a a story you can really imagine. It's very vivid in the telling. But he doesn't tell us this part. And it seems like it matters, doesn't it? If you listen to this story and you find yourself relating more to the older brother than to the younger brother in this story, then you're probably interested to know what he does. But maybe that's exactly the point. Maybe that's exactly the point. Jesus wants these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, the ones who are grumbling against him, to see themselves in the older brother, the son who has, is grumbling against his father for celebrating the younger son's return. 
because his brother had left and his father had accepted him back when he returned. This father who in many ways had been humiliated, who had been taken advantage of by the son who left, he now feels nothing but joy at his return. And of course we are meant to see God's mercy and grace, which is extended to us in the actions of the father. The father who is waiting for him and runs out to greet him. But the older brother, at this point, he can't even bring himself to call the other son his brother. He says, this son of yours. And how does he respond to his father's invitation to the party? I don't think Jesus tells us because the jury is still out for his audience. These tax collectors, sorry, not the tax collectors, the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. The jury is still out for them. We don't know what they will do. And so by leaving the story uncertain, Jesus invites these people to decide for themselves as if to say, what are you going to do? This is how it is. This is how it is in heaven. When a sinner comes to repentance, there is a party. What are you going to do? Are you going to come in and join in the party uh, and, and celebrate the return of these tax collectors and sinners, these outsiders who haven't followed all the rules like you have? Or are you going to stay outside, embittered by your own self-righteousness and entitlement? Eugene Peterson actually calls this the parable of the lost sons. Not the lost son, but the parable of the lost sons. Breaking it into two different stories that Jesus is telling. One about the younger and one about the older. And his point is that the older son is just as lost as the younger one, but he doesn't realize it. He thinks he is found. And when the father comes and invites him to celebrate, he is calling the older son to the same repentance that the younger one had found as well. And the older son's challenge is realizing his own sin and his own need for repentance in response to the grace that his father has given him. He has to realize that he is lost and come to his senses as well. I think the truth is that, that for many of us, I would say, for many of us, that we have had times in our lives when we have been the younger brother, running away from God and returning to his loving embrace and repentance after we have come to our senses. But there are also times for many of us when we have been the older brother and where we have stood in ju judgment on other people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, because of their sin. And the good news for us that we see from today's story is that the father goes to each one of them and claims them as his children and invites them to the party. One of the great things uh, that I love about this story is that it tells us about what God is like. This story tells us about what God is like. And there's a lot of places that we go to figure out what is God like? What is God's character like? We, we like to use words like omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent, right? He's all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, all of these things. But I think that a story like this gets us a little bit closer to the heart of what God is like, this story. Job and I were talking this week earlier about parables and how Jesus does so much of his telling in stories because it helps us to see things in a different way. And this is a great story to see what God is like because what we find in this story is the heart of the heavenly father for his lost children the younger sons and older sons alike. 
And our, the heart of our father is to celebrate when either of these sons are found. This is what God is like. This is what our heavenly father is like. And this is what happens in the heavens when one sinner comes to repentance. There is a huge party and everybody celebrates when even one of God's lost children is found again. Tim Keller, uh, a pastor, he died about a year ago now, a pastor of, of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He wrote a book about this passage called The Prodigal God. Uh, it's a great book. I would recommend it to you if you can uh, find a copy of it. Uh, it really changed my perspective on this story, and I think and on the gospel in many ways. But Keller talks about this, and he uses the definition of prodigal. And so I put it up here. This is from Merriam-Webster, okay? It says this. This is what prodigal means, because so often we call this the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal means characterized by profuse or wasteful expenditure, lavish, or recklessly spendthrift. And it's used to, to talk about someone who spends all of that they have, all that they have, in sort of an irresponsible way. And Keller flips this around and says, look, if you want to know who's actually prodigal in this story, it is the father. It is the father. The father is the one who spends all that he has in ways that we might look at and say, this is lavish. This is irresponsible. I'm going to kill the fatted calf and I'm going to throw a big party because he is the prodigal one because he holds nothing back from us. And all that he has, he gives to us. In spite of the ways that we might misuse it, in spite of the ways that we don't appreciate it, in spite of the ways that we don't deserve it, God has taken all that he has and given it to us in Jesus Christ. And the proof of this is that Jesus Christ came to us in order to seek us out and to find us. And this is another thing that Keller points out, which I really like. He says that Jesus is the true older brother in the story. He is the one that we need. He's not the older brother that stays back and just wonders what's going to happen and casting judgment on the younger brother, but he's the older brother who goes to the far off country in search of his younger brother, his younger sibling, the wayward one, in order to bring him to his senses and call him to repentance and to bring him home. The younger son was lost. We are all lost. But Jesus came and searched for us and found us and called everyone to celebrate and have a party at our repentance. He brings us home to our Heavenly Father's loving and welcome embrace. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, which we're going to look at this passage next week, but Jesus says this is exactly what he came to do. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So friends today, wherever you find yourself in this story, whether you find yourself today as the younger son who is far from God in every way and headed down a road that leads you to nowhere good, or whether you are the older brother today, obeying all of the rules, doing all of the right things, but far from God in your heart and imprisoned by your own self-righteousness, then know that God your prodigal father has spared nothing, not even his only beloved son, in order to bring you back home to him. And hear his invitation today. Come into the party, for I will always be with you, and all that I have is yours, if you will receive it. Amen. Let us pray.
Gracious God, we give you thanks for the grace that you have given us, the the lavish grace that you have given us, the undeserved grace that you have given us. We thank you that you are the Father who, who, Lord, sees us from a long way off and rushes out to meet us and brings us home. We thank you that you sent our true older brother into this world to come and to find us, to call us to repentance, to bring us to our senses. So, Lord, we pray that for each one of us, uh, that we would heed that call to repentance, that we would turn back to you. And Lord, if, if there are those of us here today who are, who are in a good place with you, Lord, who we know our, our need, our, the grace that we have received, I pray that you would place it on our hearts to go and seek out our brothers and sisters who need to hear this message. Lord, that we might call them back to repentance ourselves, to bring them back home to you as well. So Lord, would your spirit be upon us, we pray. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.